We're going to turn together in our Bibles this morning to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, so if you've got a Bible with you, you might like to flick it open there or turn your device onto it, whatever you want to do. John chapter 10, we'll start reading at verse uh, 22 and then we'll dive into our theme for, for this morning. John 10, verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered round him, saying, the Jews who were gathered there round him, saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you. But you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He's talking about you. Hallelujah. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Hallelujah. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, You are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Father, we do thank you again today for your word. And Jesus, we thank you for the gift having your words. We thank you, Lord, that though they weren't written to us, they were written for us. And so, Holy Spirit, today, would you inspire in us an understanding, and in that understanding, inspiring us a trust, and in that trust, inspiring us a faith. Lord, we're here because we want to know you more. And so we offer you this moment now. Would you speak on into this time? Would you speak into our hearts and minds and lives today? And lead us on, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to see you this morning. Great to be able to welcome you. Uh, if you are a, a guest or a visitor with us, uh, we're in a series at the moment called We 
believe, because we believe, right? Good, some of you do. Good, three of you, that's good. Uh, but what we're really keen to explore is, is what is it that we believe? What is it that the Christians believe about the world? What do we believe about Jesus? What do we believe about the church? What do we believe about each other? And the great thing is we're not starting from scratch here. There's something called the Apostles' Creed, an ancient attempt to put all the apostles' teaching about Jesus in one place. And so this is a statement, the Apostles' Creed, that we share with brothers and sisters from right across the streams and styles of, of Christianity. So we're going to read that together uh, again this morning. So for some of you, you. This may be the first time you've ever read it. Congratulations. Uh, for others of us, it'll be a, a number of times we've read this together. But perhaps we can read these words. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I don't know about you, but the experience I've had as we've read that together over the last few weeks is I get really excited as I read those words. Such a great thing to be able to say, isn't it? I believe in Jesus Christ. We get so many few opportunities just to say it. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in life eternal. I don't know about you, but this stuff gets me excited. And we're going to dive into another aspect of that creed this morning. Uh, this week on Wednesday, we were hosting a conference here to which different church leaders from right across South Wales were invited together. And we were exploring a very, very difficult and, and complicated topic together. And it was being led by the two co-principals of the Baptist College. Some of you will remember uh, Rosa Hunt was a student with us while she was training for ministry. Uh, she's now gone, gone on to be a co-principal, so we're, a, we're kind of a principal training kind of church, which is kind of nice to know. Uh, but she was leading us through that day. And she said, when it comes to complicated questions about God, really and truly, it comes back to what you believe is the answer to one core question. And she told a story about a time when she was working with street pastors in Caerphilly. And one night, she was out at silly o'clock in the morning, and she saw a guy quite distressed sat on the pavement. And so she went and sat next to him and got chatting. And then came the question that she said she dreaded, and a lot of us ministers dread. So what do you do for a living? It's usually a conversation killer. Uh, and uh, she said, well, I'm, I'm a church minister. And this guy said, oh, that's great, because I've always wanted to ask somebody, what is God like? I wonder how many people would love to ask somebody who knows, what is God like? So take 30 seconds, talk to the people around you, next to you, 
What, what words come to mind? What is God like? Take 30 seconds. Fab, thank you for doing that. I wonder, I wonder if you could summarize in three or four words what God is like. I'm slightly worried it took a little bit of time to get us going this morning. You might imagine a bit more energy than that, but here we go. A few words. What, what's God like? Anyone? Shout for me. Merciful. Great word. God is merciful. Compassionate. Merciful, compassionate. Yes, at the back. Very good. Omnipotent. Very good. Any others? Personal, patient. Yeah. Just. Faithful. Yeah. Manifested through Jesus. Yeah. Everything. God is everything. Yeah. Love. God is love. What was great was to sit with a bunch of ministers. And watch us all try to outminister each other with this question, with a, how clever and theological we could come up with. But if someone asked you tomorrow, what is God like? I wonder what the uniquely Christian answer is to that question. Surely, in terms of the New Testament, our biblical answer is God is like Jesus. God is like Jesus. That's what we believe, isn't it? That everything that came before is, is somehow a shadow of what was to come, is the promise of, of which Jesus is the complete fulfillment. Uh, there was a moment, there's a, a, quite a few sort of punch-the-air moments in, in this conference, but one of them for me that really stood out is that Jesus didn't just come to complete our vision of who God is. He came to heal our vision of who God is. The question really isn't how God-like do you think Jesus is, but how Jesus-like do you think God is? When we say that we believe, we believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, as revealed in and through Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. Our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I don't know if you've noticed this recently, but uh, the aliens are back. Have you noticed the aliens are back? Uh, when I was growing up, there was um, a, a program called The X-Files. I'm going to confess to you this morning as a teenager. I was obsessed with this show uh, called The X-Files. I had the posters. I had the DVDs. I was part of that um, club where you could sign up and get a monthly magazine. Uh, to, I kind of went into it all. I, I absolutely loved it. And recently in the news, there's been some of those stories hitting that Fox Mulder would have loved. And Anybody see the U.S. Congress on UFOs or uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, they're called now, isn't it? UAPs. Anybody see any of that? Was it just me? A few people are being brave and admitting it. And there were some amazing stories, some incredible eyewitness accounts 
Then a few weeks later, another story that Fox Mulder would have died for. Some alien bodies were dug up in the Mexico desert. How many people got excited over that? Yeah, one person in the back, yeah, two people. Wow, non-human entities dug up in planet Earth. Wow. I was thinking of all of these stories and everything that was being said, and I was reminded of a phrase that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And it's just true, isn't it? If you're going to claim something extraordinary, you're going to need a level of extraordinary evidence to, to back it up. We've just read these words together. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. That's an extraordinary claim to make that this man called Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, in obscurity, is somehow God's only son. See, sometimes we get so used to these words, we don't think about it, but that is an extraordinary claim to make. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, has no earthly father. That's an extraordinary claim to make. Born of the Virgin Mary, an extraordinary claim to make. So this morning, I want to take a look, if we can, in the time that we've got, at this man they called God. And I want to ask the question, is there extraordinary evidence to back up this extraordinary claim? Now, I know what some of you are thinking already this morning you know, Mark Williams is in the British snooker final this afternoon. Have you got time, John, this morning to cover all of that and allow me to watch the snooker final? And the answer is no. And yes, that you will go home in time to watch the snooker final because I'll be the first one watching it. But I won't have time to cover everything. I'm going to scratch the surface this morning. But I hope for somebody or for some of us here today, it scratches where we itch. Or at least scratches under our skin. A little bit. This man they called God. When we say we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, what do we mean? And it's a big question because at the moment, there can be a lot of people who quote Jesus, who say that they follow Jesus, who like Jesus, think that he's a good guy, a good teacher, a good example. But what does it mean to say, I believe? I trust, I know Jesus Christ. Well, I'd love to visit just four chapters of this amazing story of Jesus' life. Uh, this, by the way, was a photo that was taken, just to go back to the alien story. It's a, no, it's a real photo of a lamppost, sadly, but it's a great, great photo, great photo. Uh, so let, let's begin at the beginning, at his arrival. See, the extraordinary claim that Jesus is God's only son is immediately backed up in the Apostles' Creed by a piece of evidence or another claim that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, some of you this morning will be thinking, John, it's October, believe it or not. It's too early to be preaching on the virgin birth. You've arrived at it too early. But I wonder if that's part of the problem, that we look at these passages in isolation as part of a story that we visit once a year. But actually, Jesus' identity is fundamental. Who Jesus is is fundamental to everything 
If Jesus is somebody who is divinely inspired, divinely empowered, but human, then what we see in his life, his ministry, his mercy, his compassion, is not, it might be God-inspired or God-shaped, but it's not God himself. Let's start at his arrival. Come back with me to a town in Nazareth where a woman called, young woman called Mary is pledged to be married. She's got a guy, by all accounts, he's a good guy, he's a righteous guy, a guy called Joseph. He's working hard, preparing as they would have done from betrothal to wedding day, taking a year to build a house for them on the back of his father's house. So all of those plans are in place. The Bible tells us she is found to be pregnant. And Joseph hears about this. And Joseph thinks what we would all think. Joseph feels what we would all feel. Joseph does probably what we would all do. I don't know if all of us would have gone about it quietly, but that's, that was his heart. That's what he wanted to do. To end it in a way that doesn't totally publicly shame Mary. He doesn't have to do this. He can call for the death penalty if he really wants to in that society. But he decides not to. And so we're left with the person of Mary. A young girl, scandalously in that culture in that day, pregnant out of wedlock. If she's looking for a story to spin... This story seems quite outlandish. There are other ways to maneuver, to, to, to kind of uh, react to this situation. If she'd claimed that the pregnancy was the result of a rape, then Joseph would have been duty-bound legally to carry on and marry her. There would have been no further consequences for her. This story that an angel has visited her and told her that she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit seems an incredibly outlandish way out of this situation. Obviously, Joseph views it that way initially and starts to put preparations in place in his heart for a quiet divorce. And then he has a dream. An angel visits him and says, Joseph, don't be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will conceive and give birth to a son. His name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I'd love to have been there in that moment when Joseph comes running into Mary and kind of reverses all the plans that he's been placing in his heart and putting in place to say, I've seen the angel, he came to me in a dream. And the moment they realized that the angel had said the exact same name to both of them, I would love to have been there in that moment. And it's a lot of thinking people do. People have questions about how that could have happened and how a virgin birth could even be possible at all and how miracles work in this situation. But I tell you for me, what is one of the biggest pieces of evidence for it? Joseph was there. And Joseph believed her. And we can look, can't we, 2,000 years later and claim all kinds of theories and ideas of he was there. He believed her enough to take her home as his wife, to invest his life in, in raising this child, in being known as the son, as the father of this Jesus, this child. Incredible story. 
So as you know, it's all plain sailing from there. Not, not quite. There's a nas- national census, and he's got to go to his hometown, which is miles away in Bethlehem. When he gets there, there must have been family there, but there's no room for them when they get there at all. And so they're forced to, to find somewhere else. And this baby, God's son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, is laid in a manger, for goodness sake. An animal feeding trough. And then sometime later, there are these mysterious visitors from the other side of the world who've seen something in the heavens that's inspired them. Two years, huge expense to come and visit, to lay at his feet gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we sometimes miss this. They lay this tribute at his feet, and then they worship. People who'd never met this couple before, never clocked eyes on this baby, worshipping. So immediately, there's a divide between Old and and New Testament. It's a a continuation of a promise, but a big part of the Old Testament is that you worship God and God alone. This moment alone is, is blasphemy to a Jewish mind, unless this child in this manger, the exact same child that two people have seen an angel talk about, a bunch of shepherds have heard angels sing about, gets worshipped as a baby. From day one, ideas of his origin and his identity were always there. Questions, who is this child? What is this life? So much so that those same visitors have rocked a city, terrified a king, inspired this dictator to wipe out a generation of kids under the age of two years old. His enemies knew there is something about this child they call God. From his arrival from day one, there were questions. And then this child grows up We don't know an awful lot about the next kind of 30-ish years of his life. There's one moment in the temple, which is hugely powerful, but then he starts to teach. And one of the things he first gets known for is his preaching ministry. Jesus would tell stories and ask questions, and people would flock to him. People would spend all day, forget about their plans for food and work, just listening to these words. It was said of Jesus, no one has ever spoken like him before. The words of Jesus. You probably don't think about this often, but all of us here today have a mental map. If we were to peel back your head and take a look, all of us have an understanding of the way the world works. It was given to us early in life. It kind of enhanced and developed at various points in our adolescence and early adulthood. It got challenged and uh, and shaped, but it will remain largely unchanged uh, for the course of our lives. This way of how the world works and what a good life looks like and what a good person looks like. Some of it we'll think about, others of it we'll just never think about. The mental map 
of the world when Jesus arrived was shaped by two kind of really strong forces, uh, the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire. A lot of the philosophy of the Greek Empire and Stoicism especially was still kind of overshadowing and overhanging. Rome, that taught that dominance without mercy was the kind of the supreme way to live. And the Stoicism of the day, the Greek culture, that taught that compassion was a weakness, that emotion slowed you down and clogged up the system. It was a, a virus in the machine. You didn't need it. Historians now claim that the reason mercy and compassion and now seen as strengths in our world, can be traced back to the teaching of one person. Does anyone want to guess who that person is? The world has taken a different trajectory because of Jesus. I was reading a couple of weeks ago, a historian, uh, G. Wells, was talking about Jesus. and He said, I am a historian. I am not a believer. But as a historian, I must admit that the person of Jesus is irrevocably the centerpiece of human civilization, the center of human history. Another person put it this way, if you could somehow get a kind of historical magnet and suck up from all of archaeology and history any remnant of Jesus' name, anything inspired by him, the schools, the hospitals, the orphanages, the food banks, anything connected with Jesus, if you could lift it all out, you'd barely have anything left. This world is a different place because of Jesus. And why is that? This man who could speak into the human soul with such accuracy, such precision, who would say things like, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's an extraordinary claim. Well, today with the birth of psychology, we can, we can test that out. And guess what? Time and time and time again, Jesus turns out to be right. And people all over the world, even today, are shaping their mental map with Jesus at their centerpiece and discovering life works this way. Hope is born this way. Why is that? Because Jesus was an inspiring speaker. Come on. Change the world. This penniless preacher from Nazareth, who dared to believe that God loved this world. And that if you discover your place in God's heart, life in the kingdom is worth living. Last month, there was the anniversary of a terrorist attack in Pakistan. The 22nd of September, uh, 2013, one of the largest uh, in recent history, uh, a church on a Sunday morning was bombed by two suicide bombers, uh, 250 people injured, uh, 115 killed. Uh, one person who was affected was this guy, a pastor from Scotland, up in Kirk, from Pakistan, but now, now living and working in, in Scotland. And he said that Sunday morning he got a text message saying that his home church had been bombed and that his mother and 19 other relatives had died in the blast. He, uh, he didn't want to let the church down, and so he carried on ministry that day, but then had to take a significant time off just to process everything that had happened. He writes about that really honestly and says that he was so angry, 
so angry that he did not want to stop feeling angry. He was so bitter that he didn't want to stop feeling bitter. And he wondered, seriously wondered, if the hate that he felt in his heart would ever go away. And he said he spent a long time reading about Jesus, revisiting who Jesus is, listening deeply to what Jesus taught. And that moment on the cross when Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And he talks about the months of praying, Jesus, would you help me to forgive because this anger is too ugly. This hurt is too heavy. Would you help me to forgive? And he said when he learned to face it Jesus' way, life came. The words of Jesus still shaping our worlds today. And then there are the works of Jesus, the things that Jesus did. I love that verse that we read in John chapter 10 earlier when this question of Jesus' identity comes up again. And what's so fascinating about Jesus is he wants people to walk with him. He wants people to do life with him and to come to their own conclusions. It's just true, isn't it, that if Jesus came and walked around telling everyone, hi, I'm God, you can imagine what the response to that would be, but people began to see it and glimpse it and experience it for themselves. And Jesus brought healing to places of hurt and brokenness. Jesus brought hope to places of despair. I love this one occasion when he's teaching in someone's house. And as he's teaching, bits of the roof get ripped off. I often feel for the person whose house that was, right? Built that, but again ripped off. And then as Jesus is talking, this crowd of people that have not let any extra people come in have to kind of get out of the way while this person is lowered on a mat and placed on the floor before Jesus. And I'm guessing that a lot of people are looking down (laughs) at this man and then looking up at the friends, probably looking over at the owner of the house, (laughs) and then looking at Jesus. What's Jesus going to do? Do you like being interrupted? Jesus was interrupted in mid-flow by this. And he looks down at this man. And he says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Pick up your bed and walk. Which, of course, was like a red rag to a bull. And the theological police in the room dive on this and says, who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, they're right. This is God's world, and if I hurt it, I'm, I'm hurting its maker. If I hurt you, I'm, I'm hurting one of his children. Yes, I need to apologize to you and put it right with you, but there's a list of things that stand against me on God's record. Only God can forgive me of everything. Only God can cleanse me of everything. Only God can forgive sins. Just imagine for a moment if I heard that You'd been beaten up by somebody who was stealing from you, and they'd left you in a terrible state in hospital, and I came to visit you, and I said, don't worry. I know you're hurt. I know you're robbed, but I've forgiven them. I don't think that would be any comfort to you at all. But since God is the grieved party, since God is the hurting father, only he can forgive us 
of everything. They were right. Only God can forgive. So Jesus says, well, just so you know that I've got authority on earth to forgive sins, get up and walk. The word healing in Greek and the word saved are the same word. I can heal, I can forgive, get up and walk. Maybe some of us here today feel that we're trapped in sin. Jesus doesn't just forgive us, he says, get up and walk. There's a way out of this, there's a new life, there's a new power to live by. And time and time again, we see Jesus do that thing that he says, that only his Father, only God should be able to do. And for some of you here this morning, there might be a question mark over this. But of course you believe that Jesus did those things, because you believe the Bible. Isn't that a circular argument? And I, I get that. It's hard to say I believe this part of the Bible is true because I believe this part of the Bible is true. Because You just go around in circles. So I just want to take a second this morning, so I'm scratching the surface, to talk about why we take the Bible seriously. Why should we listen to it at all over any other book or over any other ideas about who Jesus is? Well, one of the reasons is to do with what's called manuscript evidence. When we come to an ancient document, there are certain questions that we ask about it. One is, how closely was it written to the event that it took place? So where in time does that document sit? Who was the author of it? And was there an agenda? Was there a purpose around their writing of it? Would it have benefited them to make this claim in some way? And then another fascinating piece of evidence is how seriously... Did those documents get taken at the time? Because I could write anything about anyone, right, and bury it in the dirt. And if someone discovers that later, just because they found what I've thought doesn't make it true. So how many people wanted to, to own a copy of the New Testament? How many copies can we find? How seriously did it get taken back then? I just want to walk through a few very quick things. Uh, I've picked two examples, and, and, and these are two of the strongest examples from ancient literature. Uh, there's a book called uh, Annals that's written by a Roman uh, historian, a senator, uh, called Tac Tac Tacitus. I always say tactics. Tacitus. Uh, and that was written somewhere around the turn of the first century. The earliest copies that we found uh, of that, sorry, you, um, this is a bit slow this morning, uh, were about a thousand years later. So here's an example of a historical document that we take very seriously. There's certain historical details we take out of them without questioning. It's about a thousand years after uh, it was written. Uh, and we found around 20 copies uh, of that. Not full copies, some of them are fragments, but around 20 copies. There's also something called the Iliad, written by Homer Simpson, very good. Now, now this was a poem. It describes uh, a period of, of Greek history. I think it's the war with the Trojans. But nevertheless, even though it's a poem, there are details that we take out of it without questioning. It's written something like 800 years before Jesus. Earliest copies found about 400 years later, 400 BC. Uh, now, this one is, in terms of historical accuracy, kind of thought of as being relatively reliable because we've got something like 643 copies. 
Now, those are good examples of histor historical documents. Most have far fewer copies that we've discovered. We're talking seven, eight, nine copies. How does the New Testament fare when you put it through the same tests? Uh, well, the New Testament has got, depending on uh, your belief in how it was compiled and, and put together, at the most, 16 different authors. Uh, we know it was written between different books, different letters, between 50 and 100 AD, so not long at all after Jesus' life. One of the first things they believed that were written were the letters that were written to the churches. Um, interestingly, these were dynamite. So you could get arrested in the early church simply for having been present when one of Paul, John, or Peter's letters were read. If you knew the location of one of those letters, you could be arrested and even worse. Uh, then the Gospels were written a little bit later on. We think Mark was first, Matthew, Luke, then John. Uh, so earliest copies of these fragments uh, were found as early as... Uh, 114 AD, so that's within 50 years of being written. Uh, books around 200 AD, I'll let you do the maths yourself, the answers will, will, will come up. Uh, so most of the New Testament copies were found around 250 uh, AD, so that's 150 years uh, afterwards. Uh, and then finally, the complete canon of Scripture was agreed around 325 uh, AD. But you can see, even by that test alone, these are early, early, early documents. Uh, by a historical standard, the Bible is taken incredibly seriously because of its location in time. Sometimes we read things, don't we? Every now and again it comes up, somebody's written a book or a blog or an article about things like the Gospel of Judas, which we found three copies of. None of them complete, or the Gospel of Thomas, which there's only one copy of. Again, not complete. Written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, they simply fail the historical test that the books and letters of the New Testament. Um, now, here's the figure. To date, we've discovered 5,366 copies of the New Testament in the places that they're describing. This stuff is dynamite. It's dangerous. People would disappear simply for owning it. And as the professor of archaeology at the University of Jerusalem once described it, you can barely dig up a corner of Israel without finding gospels, gospels, gospels everywhere. It was taken incredibly seriously back then, which means that we should take it seriously now. If there wasn't 5,000 people present on a hillside who all believed that Jesus fed them with five loaves and two fishes, the, 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 the papyrus that this stuff was written on would not be worth its weight. If Jesus wasn't really arrested by Pilate or never really appeared before Herod, these things would be dismissed so, so easily, so quickly. There are good reasons to take the Bible incredibly seriously as a historical document, and thinking honest historians do even today. There's good reasons when we pick up the New Testament, not just to take it at face value, but to listen to it as important. So when it talks about Jesus, and it talks about the things that he did, the places he went, the lives that he touched, 
the change that he brought, the power, the healing, the grace that was available. We do not follow cleverly invented stories. These are eyewitness accounts of people who were there. And then finally, I want to talk about Jesus' obituary. You would have thought that somebody who went around blessing and bringing hope, talking about love and grace, might have been well received. But the reality is that those who walk the way of love are always going to be challenging to those who love power and who cling to power. And they're so threatened by Jesus' message that they want to wipe him off the face of the earth. And so Jesus is arrested. And there's this kind of arm wrestle that's going on with the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities. But eventually Jesus is condemned to death on a cross. This awful way that the Romans had perfected of humiliating and torturing a person to death. Literally beating and forcing the breath the life out of a person in the most publicly humiliating way possible. These Roman centurions, of course, for them, this was a day job. This is what they did. There would have been somebody responsible for overseeing this, and somebody responsible for each aspect of it, and they saw people die on a daily basis in service of Rome keep the Rome machine, the war machine, marching on. And then this man that they call God dies on the cross. And we're told that as he died on the cross, the earth beneath the cross shook. Creation shudders. The sky goes dark. We're told that in Jerusalem, righteous people start to come out of their tombs. We're told that in the temple, this curtain, this huge piece of cloth, fabric that divided the people from the presence of God, is torn in two from top to bottom. The place is shaken by the death of Jesus. And the Roman centurion stood by the cross, sees all of this happened, and the manner in which Jesus dies, and says, surely this man was the Son of God. His enemies knew, see. They knew the threat that he was. His obituary. It's interesting, we worship, don't we, right across from a graveyard. There's another one. Uh, down in, in the village, if you visit a lot of people's graves, there are certain numbers that you'll see, usually written uh, on the gravestone or uh, on a plaque that represents the dates in which they lived, the date that they were born and the date that they died. If you were to go to a garden tomb in Israel, the one that they believe is the place where Jesus was buried, if it's not that specific one, it won't be one that's far away from it, we get a lot of details in the New Testament about where Jesus was buried. So if it's not that exact one, it's one nearby. But the numbers on his tomb are not the date that he died, but a Bible reference. A verse that a man wrote to a church in Rome for crying out loud. A place where you'd get arrested for believing this. Jesus Christ declared with power 
to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. See, the three days after Jesus was buried in this tomb, some people went to anoint the body, and they got this invitation that you don't normally get in a graveyard. Why don't you come and see the place where he lay? Because he is not there. He is risen, which is why, by the way, by the way, Jesus' tomb is the only one I can think of anywhere in the world where there is a welcome mat by the door. Because the invitation still stands. Look at it yourself. Explore the evidence for yourself. I can lend you some books that people that have tried to do that, but I'd encourage you to do it for yourself. This Man they call God. See, the resurrection settles a really old argument about who Jesus is. It's not just another life, not just another great teacher, not just another lovely bloke, not just another religious leader. He's alive. Which means that we can sit here and talk about him today, or we can talk to him. Which means that we can learn about him, or we can learn from him. He is alive and well. See, when we say that we believe in Jesus Christ, this man they call God, we believe that he's living. And that we don't need to trust sources about him. You can actually trust him with your life, with your eternity, with your faith. So I just want to invite you for just a moment to bow your head this morning. I just want to invite you for a second to think about who you think Jesus is. And just to offer that to him today. And maybe just to ask him... Lord Jesus, would you deepen my understanding of you? Thank you that you don't just call me to believe, you you call me to know you. You don't just call me to be a follower, you call me to be a friend. And maybe for some of us today, there's a first step to take. We're aware that that list of things that have hurt God and hurt those people that God has made and loved needs to be dealt with, needs to be sorted. And maybe for some of us, we've tried to sort that ourselves. We've arranged our lives around trying to be better and trying to be good and trying to undo the bad that we've done. The truth is that's exhausting. And the truth is it's exhausting because it's impossible. And this man they called God, this Jesus came to bridge that gap. We've already been singing it today, the perfect life, the perfect death. And this Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. And if you need to ask him to today, 
He's already paid for your sin on the cross. And he is wanting and waiting to forgive and cleanse you. And you can just ask him right now, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? And would you lead me? Lord Jesus, for all of us here today, I thank you that you came to heal our vision of God in places where we limit you, places where we're suspicious, places where we're hurting. We need to see Jesus again. So would you open our eyes, Jesus, to more of who you are, to more of your grace and mercy, to more of your compassion. Father, for any of us here today whose faith recently has has taken a bit of a knock in terms of our confidence, then Holy Spirit, I pray right now, would you come to clothe our faith with the certainty that can only come from knowing you, from walking with you. I pray today, Lord Jesus, would you build your church, would you build us up, And would you make us more and more and more like you?